welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. In this week's conversation, we are off to the world of events, something I'd perhaps inadvertently neglected in my conversations around the world of hospitality. Certainly a part of the sector that today's guest, Adam Phelps, feels like the government has forgotten when it comes to recognition of the pandemic's impact and financial support. Adam has been working at the top end of prestigious events for 22 years and chatting through some of the choreography and the planning required to deliver for clients who expect perfection and are happy to pay for it was inspiring. A hundred meals delivered to the table in perfect synchronization by 50 model looking front of house members immaculately presented is just one that creates a vivid picture in my mind. And Adam has looked after famous rock stars, the best jewellery and fashion brands, and big festivals, but more recently has had to be exceptionally creative to find a way to navigate the impact of COVID. Losses have racked up, but seller society are working hard to keep their team employed and to ensure that their loyal customer base does eventually come back to them when permitted to do so. So it feels fitting to be releasing this episode on the day that the government are once again pushing back full opening from the 21st of June and the nightclub sector and large event companies must not be forgotten. Restaurant and pub garden trade is currently strong, but many in our sector continue to struggle. But this is not a COVID specific episode and I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Much of the story is about Adam and his team's adventures and business journey so far. And remember, if you do enjoy the show, please subscribe to the podcast or head over to the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk and sign up for the newsletter where I will keep you up to date with any new releases. Thanks so much. Adam Phelps, Director at the Seller Society, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hugely appreciated. Uh, alas, we are not uh, face-to-face in the same room, as too often is the case in the modern world. But where are you joining me from, Adam? Are you at the office? Are you at home? Where in the world are you? At home in a little cottage up in the Chilterns um, near Great Missenden in Buckinghamshire. Ah, oh, very nice. That's a nice part of the world, isn't it? Yeah, days like today, it's a, it's a perfect place to be. Yeah, amazing. Okay, good. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Um, so I've not really investigated the events market yet on this podcast, which seems crazy when it's such a big part mm. of hospitality. So I'm really excited to finally get to do that. And even more so excited to do it with with you because the event company that you run is you know very prestigious and you do some, some serious events as we're going to get into. Um, am I right in saying you've been a director at, at the Seller Society for 22 years? So presumably you're very well placed to discuss this sector, I guess. Yes, you make me sound very old. But yes, 22 years. I think we, we celebrated our 20th anniversary a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, it's been a long time. But And we sort of started in wine tastings hence the name so we started doing wine tastings as a, a form of corporate entertainment for the city city banks and, and property companies many years ago and um that bit by bit um 
morphed into doing catering for those events and and then ended up basically just being a catering company an event catering company yeah well there's an underselling look so so it's it's actually really hard to find out a huge amount about you when you're online and and i sort of realized the more research i was doing that i definitely wasn't your target market because you really do work you know your your homepage on your website lists some of your clients and you work with you know some incredible brands some incredible individuals creating these kind of bespoke events so can you tell me a little bit about the kind of events you would normally be doing so let's say pre-covid what might a typical week or month look like for seller society you know at, at that time um well it's obviously incredibly seasonal so but at this time of year in particular we'd be sort of gearing up for the summer and that would be a combination of lots of small events which might consist at the lowest end of uh, one or two um, waiters in boutiques in Sloan Street or Bond Street um, helping VIP guests serve champagne and coffees and serving canapes and things like that and then you know ranging right way through to you know via the sort of shop events for 30-40 people champagne and canapes to small dinners in shops and then the bigger events, which could be private events at people's homes or at venues they've hired for their occasions. Uh, and then right up to, you know, the pinnacle of the summer, which could be the Serpentine Summer Party. Um, we do the Cartier Polo every year, which is um, towards the end of June. Um, and, we, you know, sometimes we're doing big dinners for up to 500 people at, you know, some of London's sort of most iconic venues. So, um it's um, certainly a lot quieter than it should be this year round, but yeah, that's what we should be doing anyway. Okay, and then are you you're predominantly UK based, are you, or do you do, you do this sort of globally as well? Or? We are predominantly UK based, but we do travel quite a lot. Um, that said, Brexit might have put paid to that, but um, we because we've not worked out how we can work abroad since Brexit's happened. Um, but you know, in the past, we've done lots of events in Paris. Some of our you know, London brands, even if they're French, would often pay us to go over and do events in Paris. So we've done some incredible stuff for for Dior and um, we've done weddings for, for you know, a well-known rock star who I can't mention and um, quite a few things over there. And then we've also done a couple of events in, in uh, Venice, a couple in Tuscany, um, Capri, the Amalfi Coast. So we we would hope that three, four times a year we're going abroad and those are the events we kind of, dream of um you know they are the pinnacle of any event organizers sort of career is to organize a big event um in another country and um it just adds adds layers and layers of complexity to it and risk and um you know it can almost give you a heart attack but um at the same time it's the one you look back on the ones you look back on i think wow that really was you know something special yeah, amazing. I'm thinking about just how exciting it is, you know, when I when I open a restaurant and, and the, you know, the amount of work that goes into it, but at least you know that restaurant is going to be there, you know, hopefully for years and you think of that opening night, it must be, it must just be even more incredible to put all of that work in and all of that effort to know that it's literally, you know, it's a one-off. You don't get a yeah. second chance. If service goes wrong, that's it. Presumably these are generally, they only happen once, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, I was, th- I was trying to think about the, I knew this, you know, our, our interview was coming up and I was trying to think about the main difference between restaurants and and events and, and we don't claim to be restaurateurs occasionally we dip our toe into that market and do a pop-up restaurant at, at an event or something like that but um they're quite different and we often work with some big name chefs you know where they've been paid to put their name to an event and, and design a menu and we work with them to deliver it but the big difference for me is you know an event is a one-off 
um, and uh, you know, and it waits for nobody. You know, that deadline in the sand right there isn't moving, um, and that creates you know from from weeks and months out. Um, whether it's the event organizer, I mean, you know, we are on the bigger events, we are a, a, a cog in the big wheel, um, and you know, some of these big events start six nine months out, and um, and the clock starts ticking, and and it all starts coming together, it gets closer and closer, but you, you know, you only get one shot at it. So, um, you know, obviously, even if you're opening a restaurant, you want that first night to be great. But if there's a few glitches, you've probably had a few soft openings. Um, you can iron some of those wrinkles out. Whereas as with an event, you know, there's no second chances. But that said, we also, for the bigger stuff, we leave very little to chance and we minimise risk and we rehearse quite a, you know, it is a bit of a stage performance at times, especially when we're doing, for instance, you know, we might do, we've done a huge dinner at Banqueting House a couple of years ago for, um, you know, a big luxury jewellery brand. And it was three long tables of 100 people each. And we needed to serve each table at once. So we'd have, um, you know, you've got 50 waiters carrying two plates each um, coming into the room. And you basically got to choreograph them walking towards the table, splitting either side of it, walking up either side of it, and then stopping in unison, and then um, looking at, you know, the two maitre d's who are standing either end of the table with a third um, sort of maitre d calling the orders over the radio, and they're all looking at your head, waiting for you to nod, and then they all put their right-hand plate down in front of the guests, across them, and um, and then do the same with the left hand, and then they stand up and they all wait for the sign to turn left and clear out. So, a lot of the events we do are are choreographed in terms of the service and has to be seamless. You know, when you've got a hundred plates going down or fifty plates going down at the same time, you notice um, when one of them's out of sync. And you know, we have we probably get the guys for an hour and a half to two hours before the event to rehearse this, and you spend half an hour briefing them and an hour an hour rehearsing sometimes to make sure that you do it over and over again and the repetition um hopefully goes in and we're dealing with you know some of the guys who work for us the whole time and really get what we do and then the bigger the event the more you are bringing in people from agencies and and you know we do have a bit of reputation of having uh, very charming looking staff we say who are um sometimes not the cleverest and, and we have to sort of get them all to work as a team, work in unison to deliver something that's very, obviously the food needs to be incredible, but then the service is what often people remember. And, it, and we've had people at times applaud when we've done done a table of 100 people and it looks perfect. Um, and, uh, I'm glad you said that. Sorry to interrupt, but I was literally just thinking that. I mean, the hairs were on the, on the back of my neck were standing up as you were describing it, because I think as an operator, you just appreciate you know that level of detail. And I think you know I, I would literally have had to stand up and applaud if you pulled it off, because I'd be like, you know, you go to plenty of functions and events, but normally it takes an hour to get all the tables out. Well, but to do that synchronized in one hit, I'd be like, yeah, fair play. You know, well, we're, I, we're I'm impressed. In, we're lucky in some respects that the clients we work with have the budget and the money to yes. enable us to sort of go to that to that level of perfection seeking and um yeah. you know it does come with you know that ed- added extra pressure and um you know that i'm sure you you know the feeling as you're you're getting close to opening the doors for a bigger a, a special occasion whether it's a restaurant opening or whatever that you know the, the pressure mounts and the nerves start to go up and i often think that's how you tell a good event person from a bad one is is can you stay calm even when internally you are very nervous and you know sometimes we did an event for um, 
for Hermes uh, in uh, in Battersea a couple of years ago, and, and one of my senior event managers, she had to brief 160 people um, two hours before this event started, and it, you know this sea of faces in front of you, um, and doing that the first few times can be incredibly nerve wracking. You've got all your brief, you know, your briefing notes are three pages long. Um, so it's um, the bigger it gets, the more pressure there is, and the more the more things can go wrong, and inevitably will go wrong. Um, but those are the ones that, if they don't kill you, you look back and think, "Wow, you know, <laughs> that was, you know, that was incredible." And, and no one can ever take that away from me. You know, that's something you can definitely put on your CV. As I, I did that, so um, yeah, you know, so yeah, that's... it's the other thing about events. People is it, things will go wrong. A bit like many many professions, things will go wrong. And who's who's capable of coming up with solutions? You know, clients don't ever want you to go with it to them with a problem. They want you to go to them, tell them what the problem is, and how you've solved it. Mm. So, yeah. I'm, I'm i'm sort of stressed out just just listening and, and excited probably on <laughs> equal I measure. A little bit. i'm getting slight ptsd i think from <laughs> I'm, these things yeah i'm sort of imagining that a lot of people who do do events at that level and you know for that the, for, for what i'm guessing must must be understandably demanding clients because at the end of the day they're paying the money to have it delivered at that level but i'm presuming that a lot of people don't do that for multiple decades because it sounds like the sort of thing that after you know after 10 years you might go i just cannot cope with that my, my nerves are shattered is it is are there a lot of people who do come in and out of the sector or actually there are a few yeah. players that have been no, doing this for a while you're not wrong at all i think there is the better you are at it and the, and the more and the bigger the events you do the more likely you are to sort of say at some point right enough's enough um you know, I've heard you talk in other podcasts about, you know, how, you know, there's a shelf life in, in hospitality. And I, I would say events is possibly even worse than, than the restaurant sector in terms of that. You know, the restaurant sector is is strong and steady and you kind of know what's coming most of the time. Whereas and event, events have got much higher peaks and much lower troughs. So, you know, we are very quiet in January and August. And in between September, October, November, December, we are in fifth gear. You know, I've always described it as the gears of a car, but for four months we're in fifth gear with a slight break for half term in October. And I think if you don't, what what happens? You're working sometimes till two, three, four in the morning, and you've got to be up at six, seven, and and you know back in the office and planning the next event. And if you don't recover from those, not just on a, I guess there's two sides. There's, there's the there's the stress and the sort of the that side of it and then there's the physical side and physically if you don't get you know take the time to sort of um take your foot off the brake it, it builds up and at christmas you literally collapse you know i've had so many christmases where i've got to the 23rd of december taking my foot off the brake and immediately being you know gone down with some sort of cold or, or, or flu or something like that and then i think um i mean again it depends you know which part of the business you're in but you know the the chefs and the event organizers really do work incredibly hard. And, um, and, and if you're at the top of the tree, you're sort of, you take on more of the pressure, but, um, you know, I think, I think both Bertie and I worked ridiculously hard in, for 10 years. For me, that was sort of between 30 and 40. And there were, there were downsides to that, you know, kids were tiny at the time and I wasn't spending enough time at home, but we finally managed to get the business to work after about 10 years and not, we never lost money. We just never made money. And money brings with it, you know, success brings a little bit of choice. You know, you can start to um, delegate some of the, the, the jobs to other people and just try it. So 
hopefully now we've got to a point where we're not doing trying to do everything ourselves we are running teams of people and you know letting them feed back to us and and use our experience for me that's often about budgets and logistically you know am i thinking this all through the right way and um, for bertie that's are the menus correct are you understanding the client and their brand you know what kind of people and making sure the right staff are working on certain events it's um you know i think um Sometimes people look at seller society and think, you know, what you know, all they're about is pretty boys or pretty staff and pretty canapes, and they don't understand the degree of attention that we pay to everything, whether it's staff and what staff are going to work on what events, or is it about um, does that does that member of staff are they going to get the brand or are we you know you basically need to understand everything about it and get the uniforms all right so. If you've got an event for, with 10 guys working there we will know the sizes of all 10 guys and there'll be a, a suit a uniform pack for each of them with their name on it with spares you know a, a box of spares so two or three spare pairs of shoes socks trousers because some of these guys will turn up and have forgotten to, to bring them so we leave nothing to chance you know and and um so if people think we're just uh we've just got pretty boys serving a few pretty canapes that's great because they won't ever get exactly what we do which is turn over every stone and make sure that it's perfect that nothing's left to, left to chance yeah well don't worry i appreciate it i'm, <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm always you're one of those sort of groups of people that i'm just grateful that that, that they exist basically because i'm like yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't want to uh, operate in that market although i'd love to go to an event and see it but uh yeah the, you know all, all of that complexity but hats off to you so you know with, with the level of clientele that you're dealing with and the number of years that you've been doing this sorry to keep mentioning that making you feel old <laughs> but but you, you must have seen some you know particularly i suppose you know extravagant or just memorable events perhaps for, for other reasons so are there any favorite and I know you can't always mention you know who they're for necessarily, but any favourite things that spring to mind over the sort of the history of the company that always sit in, in your memory? Yeah, I mean, I guess I sound a bit like an old man, but um, because the the events that happened 10, 10 years ago seem to be better than you know. I guess pre two thousand and eight, you know, things were some of the events were just lavish to the extreme and, and incredible, you know, incredible to work on. Um, one store opening in bond street for a for a luxury italian jewelry brand they just spared no expense and we were there were 300 guests and they built a bar in the middle of the the ground floor and we had two or three of london's top top uh martini barmen working behind the bar in their white tuxedos and serving you know martinis and, and whatever else and then littered round the round the shop where there was a champagne table so you could go and try um, vintage Don Perignon against vintage Krug and Cristal and, and decide for yourself which you preferred. There was another table doing three different different types of caviar. Um, there was another table doing um, a seafood stand, you know, with lobsters piled high. And, and those were the days where perception was really not a dirty, you know, a, a dirty word as it were. Now they're all just worried about, often about perception. And, you know, I totally understand it, but to, to organise events where, Money is no issue, and you've just got to just got to make it incredible. Those, you know, those are the ones I that tend to stand out. And then, for me personally, I, I've organised a couple of events, or one in Venice and one in Tuscany, which I would say of uh, you know the highlights of my career in terms of organising events. You know, Venice brings with it a whole level of complexity. Other than obviously, it's in Italy and not you know quite a long way away. It's also an island. And, um, you know, shipping things onto Venice um, 
is is hard work and and it has to be you know planned like a military operation um but again i was lucky in both those events i was working with the same production company and by that i mean party planners who were working for the same client who was a you know a, um, a, an individually wealthy billionaire nice really nice people to work for and again money wasn't it wasn't so much that money wasn't the object but if you needed something they would give it to you rather than saying we'll work out a way of doing it cheaper and that started nine months in advance and you know by the end of it i was on my knees but um both went incredibly well and um you know it, 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 those are the ones i look back on and incredibly proud of um and you know no as i said no one can take those away from you so they're always going to be even though they you know they probably sapped a year of your life um in the um in the process um you know they still um they still sort of had such beautiful memories of of doing of doing good things yeah amazing they sound almost sort of you know james bond-esque the sort of level of scale of some of those things don't they um any any extreme lengths, I suppose, that you've had to go to to ensure a party goes well? I'm, again, I suppose I'm thinking back to those earlier days where money was, you know, no object, or maybe like you say, not necessarily. But if you, if you wanted to do something, it had to be done. Any any memories of anything when you went, well, that's bonkers, but look, we did manage to pull it off. Um, not something. I know there are plenty of things out there. Mine's gone blank slightly, but I, you know, there are silly things. Remember that story about um, a rock star leaving his hat behind in Africa and then sending his jet back to get it? Well, we've, <laughs> got, we've had events where, I mean, there was actually, I've suddenly remembered one. There was an event we were doing in uh, Montenegro. Um, it was uh, two billionaires' 40th birthday parties. And we were trying to, our food van had set off across Europe. And we suddenly got the news that the chance of them getting across the border in Montenegro without being stopped for three days were about zero. And so the boat, the the van diverted to the foot of Italy. Everything was loaded onto a, a billionaire's yacht and then shipped across the sea and went in via a port in, in Montenegro where the entire security staff of the port were paid to go away for an hour. And, and <laughs> And, and all the food for the event came in that way, and um, it, it, you know the, the show went on. But you know, crazy things like that, having having conch shells flown in from from um, you know the West Indies, where you had to, you have to get a, a a pass from the the local authorities to be able to export conch. It's a kind of protected species, but and then when it did come, it had to come over in a private jet, and so it got there in time. And this was for that that Rockstar's wedding in um, in Paris a, a couple of years ago. Um, which was in, you know, both those events I'm talking about actually ended up being in, in 40 degree heat. You know, it's, uh, I think my stats for that job in Paris, um, on the day of the event, I did 33,000 steps according to my Fitbit and it was never, never um, colder than 39 degrees. Um, and that was just from eight in the morning till midnight and I didn't get to bed till four or five in the morning. So I think that wow. of those events physically are incredibly grueling. Yeah, and that's in, in a, if that's a couple of years ago, that's in the bit of your career history where you pretty much managed to nail it and delegate everything because you had a bit yeah. of cash. So Christ knows what you were doing in the first ten yeah, years. No, <laughs> there was no space where the where the wedding was at someone's house. There was no space for a kitchen there, so we had to prepare all the food off site about two miles away in a in a in a basement flat that the production company had hired through Airbnb, and we were basically preparing all the food, which which included frying off chicken and all sorts of things there and brief all the staff there and then at a certain point 
four food trucks. I'd, I'd rented four food trucks, which um, turned up outside the house. We loaded all four food trucks with all the food for the event. And once all the guests had entered the venue and were having the reception, the food trucks pulled up outside the house. Um, all the sides came down. And from four food trucks, we fed 120 people um, their sort of two courses in about 45 minutes. And then and then the food trucks packed up and left. And it, But it was that I was... You know, the event organizer was on site all day and I was at the kitchens with all, all the chefs and stuff sort of organizing that side of things. So on the big events, we all come out and help. Um, but I hadn't done all the sort of the crossing of the T's and dotting of the I's. I'd been involved in all the planning and gone over for all the all the visits and worked out how to do it with the event organizer. Um, and But on the day, I mean, the whole company was there, basically. It was too big to to, sort of, to not involve everyone yeah brilliant i love it you, you can't see unfortunately how big the grin is on my face as you tell these stories i just think it's um I, I i think it's awesome and it doesn't get any more bond-esque than moving all of your contraband onto a private yacht and and and, and, and yeah. paying everybody to disappear for an hour i, I, I love it it's, yeah. it's hard to imagine with with those sort of stories as, as the level of stuff you know sort of you will do it's hard to imagine anything you won't do but i'm, I'm kind of thinking do you ever get clients who have you know it's like if you're in the trade you know what's possible and you know what's not but i'm guessing you must have people who have these potentially over ambitious or demanding and, and and have you had to do it and it's either gone wrong or have you always managed to talk them out of it and go you know what really that's beyond the realm or can you do anything um it's an interesting one because quite a few times bertie and i have gone to a meeting with clients and they've either he suggested something and i'm in, inwardly thinking how on earth are we going to do that or they're suggesting something and he's saying, yeah, we can do it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> How on earth? and that said, I don't think we've ever, you know, we've always managed to do it, even if um, it, it, you know, it was incredibly hard work, but it, sometimes you're managing people's expectations and there's a way of saying things to, to people like that. Yes, they are. They are, they want what they want sometimes and they want you to make it happen. But if you say to them, if you phrased it like this, which was, we could try and do that, but the risk of it going wrong is incredibly high. And if you want to take that risk and are prepared to pay the money, then we'll, you know, we'll do our, our best, but we cannot guarantee that's possible. And when you put it like that, is it a risk you really want to take? They sometimes, you know, you'll often come up with a way of sort of giving them what they want, but it's sort of probably diluted or something like that. But, you know, the amount of times Bertie's pushed us to do something that me and the head chef didn't think was possible and we've done it. And, once you've done anything in events, you can do it again and you can probably finesse it and make it even better. So the first time you do anything, um, the first time we did choreograph service was incredibly hard work. And now we rarely do an event where it's not part of it somehow. Um, you know, the first time you, you do anything, it's hard. And once you've written the template, you can do it again. So even recently during lockdown, we were, we sort of pioneered, well, came up with a concept to do, um, to do have baskets hampers delivered to people's houses by a butler and depending on whether the butler was allowed in or not the but the houses they were allowed in they would go in um set up the starter and set the table for the for the clients put all the ingredients out for the main course and then a, um, a famous chef came on like they all went online and onto a zoom call and a famous chef came on and ran them through how to cook their main course and then we served the pudding tidied up and and went we did that at 50 different houses in the uk um, on the same night at the same time and that you know that was incredibly stressful for the girl organizing it um and but now we've done it once 
Um, and she's gone through the pain of, of developing that concept and worked out what all the pitfalls are and things like that, then um, we can offer it to other people. Um, so it's, um, yeah, there's, there's many things we've been asked to do, which we've either done or dilute a little bit and done. And, and sometimes it's us suggesting things which um, are going to elevate that event to a, another level. Amazing. I do love our sector, you know, and I say sector as in, you know, sort of food, drink, hospitality, you know, all that kind of stuff, just for how innovative it is. And that's brilliant, isn't it? To be able to do, well, yeah, you yeah. literally take, take an event to people's houses, but not, not just do it, you know, oh, yes, we can come to your house, but we're going to do it exactly the same time. And uh, yeah, in a coordinated way, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Although funnily enough, you, you put your finger on something I, you know, you're probably going to ask me about at some point, but it's um, the reason we got in, you know, we were introduced for this podcast a while ago is that at some point we're not considered hospitality. Um, certainly not by the government when it comes to rates relief and things like that, and um, and yet and and yet I, I find out that you know I think there's three hundred thousand people who work in the events sector of hospitality. Um, so it's an interesting an interesting one to to talk about at some point it is yeah well we're definitely going to come back to that and we're getting we're getting quite close but just a couple of other quick things so um you, you've mentioned your butlers a couple of times as I, as I, I think you uh call them they pretty much all look like you know very cool dudes and, and models i suppose a couple of things on that do, do you suffer from any insecurities being surrounded by such perfection and, and where do you find your team you know what, what do you look for presumably you can't just go to your bulk standard agency certainly when i've gone to an agency for a last minute event that nobody arrives looking that slick and then you mentioned clothing you literally you suit and boot these guys yeah i mean we have we have a um an inner circle team of, of what we call the elites you know it's um and it's basically these are guys who have worked for us on and off for, for quite a long time they are all visually very pleasing to the eye but more than that they're charming and they really get what we do and and you know, there are layers in the company and you've got all your event organizers and the guy, these guys are one layer below all the event organizers and basically help us deliver pretty much every event. And they'll be the first on site and the, and the last to leave along with the event organizer. And these, these are guys chasing, I say chasing is probably not the right word. They're, they've all got other careers. You know, they are actors or musicians or um, singers and they're chasing their, their personal rainbow and whilst they're trying to make that work and it not not yet paying them what they want it to pay, they, they work for us and we pay them well. We give them responsibility and um, trust their judgment sometimes over our own when we're in the middle of a party. And, um, you know, these guys help us do what we do. And then one layer below, below them are, are people who um, we bring in from agencies. And, you know, some of those agencies are modeling agencies, but modeling agencies where they've got a sort of a where people are prepared to do sort of less glamorous work than modeling i.e come and be a waiter or whatever and and even lots of those guys we know personally now and we know what their their skill sets are and they know what they're good at and what they're bad at i mean some guys can't stand on the front door holding a tray because they get nervous about it and start shaking so we never put them in that position and you're always sort of trying to get people to bring the best out in people which you know we've never been one of those companies that screams and shouts at people it's just not you know not what we do whereas i know lots of people have worked for other catering companies where the briefing is is you know the boss shouting at everyone what they will they can and can't do and before the end of it you've got half the waiters in there are shaking thinking god if i get something wrong i'm in so much trouble and we've always worked from a sort of more of a motivational side of things and encourage people to be you know the best they can be i mean i've I've got briefing notes for events I've honed over the years and, and much of it is about 
empowerment and saying, look, I know this is not what you want to do for the rest of your lives, but um, hopefully if you work hard and you'll enjoy it and the time will fly by and you'll make some new friends. And, and lots of the guys who work for me are lifelong friends now. You know, they've all, you know, some occasionally one of them has a birthday and getting staff for, for an event that night is, is very difficult. We have to start bribing people to, to work. But um, so the staff are an incredibly important part of what we do. Um, and, you know, keeping that. But sometimes, you know, their career is successful and you never see them again, um, which is I'm, I'm, part of me is delighted for them. And part of me is gutted because they, they're not going to be around to work for me. So, um you know, some, Unless you can get front front row tickets at Wembley, I suppose if they well, made it big because they remember you. Right into the movie premiere or whatever it is, and, you know. It, and some of these guys I've known for 10, 15 years that so they're having some of them are having babies now or, or whatever. So it's um, it's uh, you know, our, our, we all get on incredibly well and enjoy each other's company. Um, I mean, I guess you know we're the bosses and can't can't get too pally or friendly with everyone but certainly all our event organizers and all the guys who work for us are, are very close and and you know hang out together and stuff like that and it's an important part of our ethos um and uh of, of just giving people the the power to be to be good at what they do and they, they really respond to that i mean some people will take the piss and you know you spot them quite a long way off and, and rather than fa- firing anyone you just don't ask them to work again you know, if someone doesn't doesn't want to do or doesn't want to work hard, wants to let other people do the work for them, we notice it. We do, and we don't we don't do much more than say, do you think you can work a bit harder? But we just won't ask for them again. And when we go to an agency, we're asking for specific people most of the time. Um, so yeah, we you know there's an e- a lot of those a lot of those agency staff once they've worked for us, they kind of would only if they could they would only work for us because we treat them well, they, we feed them well. Um, you know, they see the best events through us and they see events done well. I mean, sometimes if if your staff have to work an event, which is incredibly uh, stressful, um, it puts them off wanting to work for you again. And stress can come from several different ways, one of which is they never had the budget to do what they want to do. So we've understaffed it and people are washing up glasses from, you know, half an hour into event. Two is possibly the client's not told you how many people are, cl- are coming, and therefore that same situation happens. But if you put them in situations which are incredibly stressful and they're part-time staff, they just won't do it again. So, um, you know, we're, we're always trying to make sure that, not mollycoddle them too much, but make sure that it's, you know, it's the right environment to work in. Because if, you're, if your staff are stressed, then the, guests will, the vibe in the room, the guests will, will pick up on it. Um, whereas if your staff are all relaxed and been have been fired up just before going on to be charming and helpful and smiley and you know do all the things that that they know make a good party, then it, it makes a big difference to the finish um, and you know the vibe in the room. Hundred mm, percent. Yeah, I think people can tell, can't they? You know, particularly in hospitality, you can't make people you know, falsely seem happy and that they're enjoying their jobs. And, and, and quite often your team are responsible for creating the the energy and the and the buzz yeah. and the environment. I, I always say when I train my team, I'm like, you know, the, the, these buildings, these restaurants, they might be well kitted out and nice views, but yeah. they're, they're, they're not animated in any way until you guys, you know, and the customers come in. Human beings animate the space. They lift it. They, they bring it to life. And, uh, yeah. and sometimes that, that's what gets lost when people scale up, you know, and, and I, I suspect restaurants are – know more about this than anyone that you know it's all very well 
having our first restaurant and everyone being, you know, everyone on site being lovely. But then as soon as you start opening more sites, it's trying to make sure not just that the food and the, and the, and all that kind of thing are good, but also that, that, that vibe that the, the, I mean, you, you and I both know it when we go to a restaurant or go to an event and someone really good serves you, you really notice, you know, and it makes you think so much more about that place you know, it adds another 20% onto the, to the experience. It can take a good menu and in your memory, make it excellent because the person, person dealing with you was, um, was, uh, so, so good at it. Yeah. And I think people are naturally inclined, you know, if you're really good, they prefer to work for the independent sort of restaurant where they're a little bit closer to the, the ethos or the culture or the owner. And they get it in the same way that I'm sure, yeah, the agencies that you work with who do supply you staff, you know, those staff wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily go and wash glasses, you know, at Pizza Hut one night because the agency had asked, but they'll, they'll come and help you out and do it because it's yeah. a big event and you, you've treated them well and you've looked after them. Yeah. So these things fit together um, as well as the sort of importance of your team. You've obviously got the, the importance of your clients and we, we sort of joked a little bit about this earlier around me not being able to find out a huge amount about you and, and you, you know you certainly don't advertise anywhere that I'm looking I don't know whether you do advertise in general but but presumably this is deliberate so so where do you find your clients and is this a very niche market are there have you got lots of competition in this sort of pre, pre, uh, premium space that you're operating in um there is a lot of competition for event catering and um but it feels like We've carved out a niche for ourselves at at the top of the market. Certainly, in terms of if you consider the top of market to be working for fashion, luxury brands, you know, high net worth individuals, that kind of area. And obviously, there are always other people out there who who are doing what they do, and they're doing it very well. And there's some some great new companies around. Um, the smaller ones struggle to do the bigger stuff that we do. Um, but, uh, but we don't just do big stuff. We do the whole, the whole range, but, um, um, what we, uh, there was a question you asked at the right. At the beginning. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. So how do you, you know, do, do you advertise, I suppose is yeah. the word on where do you find your clients yeah. or how do they find you? Being very organic, our growth over the years. And, and part of that is because, uh, we were learning how to be businessmen and learning how to do what we were doing. And, and we're always so busy that, that, advertising just didn't cross our minds um you know we're quite good at our marketing you know we would often be written up by by magazines or or pr companies might use us to sort of form part of a story for an event and things like that so we've been quite good at getting free pr over the years and being written up in the evening standard or you know glamour magazine or whatever it may be there are all sorts of magazines who have written articles about us over the years but there was one one of them used an expression which is London's below the radar favourites, and this was ten years ago that this was written. But it it was kind of true at the moment that if you if you could have you know if you knew who we were and could afford to use us, then then you know we didn't need it, it negated the reason to advertise. The minute we became too well known, people weren't weren't sort of so interested. So now we've got to the point where we're always you know doing a bit of PR and doing a bit of marketing, but we don't advertise per se. And, you know, there's an old saying in events, you're only as good as your last event. You know, and if you do, if you do a good event, you know, you, people might tell two or three people. If you do a bad event, they'll tell 10 people. So we are, you know, we're constantly looking over our shoulder. There's, you need to be, there needs to be a, bit, a healthy bit of paranoia when you do what we do, because there's always someone looking to do it better than you are and trying to and steal your clients and steal those events. So there's, there's a healthy little um, bit of paranoia and, and keep an eye on, on the competition. And fortunately, Bertie does more of that worrying than I do. Um, I'm more worried about, you know, the finances and making sure, whereas he's always worried about 
what it is we're doing being better than anyone else and not not sitting on your you know resting on your laurels and thinking you you know you own this sector because you only own that sector as long as you're doing the job better than anyone else's so um you know there is it's a tough market um but i do and i say there's always other people trying to do it um and as long as we carry on doing what we're doing and reinventing ourselves for certain things and we'll you know we have an immense loyalty from from our clients i mean there's there's a few shops on bond street we've been dealing with now for for sort of 16 17 years and they've not ever used another caterer and they would they would go they would go to someone else in a heartbeat if we didn't keep giving them what they wanted Mm, that makes sense and then then you touched on this um a little bit earlier about sort of you know, maybe some of the most amazing events you've done were sort of in the first 10 years rather than the latter 10. People perhaps less ambitious. You mentioned this sort of this decadence or perception was the word you used. Do you, do you think, is is that is some of that this sort of environmental awareness, I suppose? Because I think it's the same with luxury hotels. It can be really hard to do luxury and be environmentally aware, just if you just think of the toiletry sometimes in, in nice yeah. hotels and the linen that's cleaned every day yeah. and all this kind of stuff. Do, as one of the reasons that events change, do, do people tend to come to you now much more aware of environmental impact? Or if you're a billionaire and you want to do a big event, is it not really relevant? It's a difficult one to answer because everyone is more aware of waste. And unfortunately, the events industry is a very wasteful industry. You know, often things are built i mean certainly uh, i i'm 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 talking above the catering sort of side of things obviously you know there's there's big companies out there who organize events and those events could range from a conference for the liberal democrats in brighton or whatever to you know the, the sort of events we do where but they are things are built specially for that event and when it's over <clears throat> you know they they used to just get thrown on the scrap heap and now people are far more um aware of trying to recycle what's been used or cut down on things i wouldn't say it's um it's gone as far as i'd like it to have gone i mean obviously all i to a certain degree all i can affect is what we do at work and how we run our our business and you know we i wouldn't say we're whiter than white but we try our hardest to recycle everything you know from food to plastic to cardboard to all of that kind of things we're you know, we we opted out of the plastic straws quite a long time ago and use metal or glass straws for every event now. And, you know, the clients are happy to pay for that extra money that goes into washing them and all that kind of thing. We try and source locally where possible, but um, certain seasons in this country are, are not great for food. Um, you know, the hungry gap and things like that. So we tr- we, we personally tr- do what we can, but, I, I, you know, I'm sure we can continue to do better. Unfortunately, it is one of those things that when you're doing well, um and you know you can afford to sort of spend money on these things and when you've had the sort of year that we've had it's difficult to carry on with those ambitious sort of uh projects as it were which which um you know putting back into in the community or whatever but uh, we're hoping that we can get back to carry you know there's a we have a recycling committee at work which sits down once a month and works out how we can do things better and continue to improve um and then you know we also deal with sourcing and that kind of thing but the events industry as a whole is getting much better and people are far more aware of it but i'm i'm still i'm sure it could get better um yeah and at the end of the day if the client and, and actually there's a lot to be said for if the person at the top of the tree insists on it being done in a certain way then everyone falls into line and if it only takes people at the top of the tree to not really care or not insist on it and people further down the tree think well you know 
no one's mentioned it. Let's not let's not worry about it. So um, I do think it's something that starts at the top, whether it's government or whatever. That you you know, if you're made to start thinking about things, you just have to fall in line and do it. So um, yeah, mm. there's, there's lots yeah, and that, that yeah, it, it, interesting. And that perception, I guess, of brands, you know, if they are seen to be wasteful, like you say, the jewelry company that once upon a time would would spend all of that money and be very flash. Now there's this perception, yeah. even if it's monetary related, I suppose, where they're saying that they don't want to be seen to be wasting the cash and just passing on the cost yeah. in the product. But hopefully there's an environmental element to that as well. I mean, there was there was always a business rationale behind what they did, even in the days of excess. You know, it was, you know, they wanted their brand to be synonymous with good times and, and you know, for the, for the people with the money to come and spend money. And obviously, um, in more recent years, they... You know, there's there's a business rationale, but toward, towards doing more targeted kind of entertainment, not you know not too too ostentatious, but but still you know they are spending money. They're just doing it in a cleverer, more subtle way, and trying to get their brand message across in a slightly cleverer way. And each of the each of the brands have their own their own way of doing things. Their their, their own you know some of the some of, there's a French uh, fashion brand who are always about they want you to understand the quality uh, of what they do and, and how they make it. So they'll often have people hand stitching leather goods in their events and, and sort of really bringing the art and the nature of what they do into it. But it, when it comes to wastage, um, I mean, I can't speak for all of them, but, um, you know, it, I'm sure luxury brands, they're all doing their bit. They have to. Um, I'm sure we can all do more. You know, it, it, there's always mm, more. Yeah. To do. Hundred percent. But at least we're having the conversation now. Even the fact we're talking about it. So I yeah. think the the trajectory is positive. I suppose it's the, the speed of that trajectory, which is which is often the challenge. So um, let's let's chat then about this issue because you, you and I were introduced a few months ago, and 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 I think you know we were right in the depths. God knows what number lockdown sure. we were on, and and things were looking very sketchy at the time. But the big thing, I suppose, is that you know hospitality uh, as an overall sector has had. A, you know a lot of publicity we've been very fortunate in that way you know you look at airlines and you look at cruise ships and, and there's so many parts of that yeah. and i'm sure there's lots of forgotten parts of business yeah. that have been yeah. affected but you seem to you know events almost like you say it's not hospitality as far as the government's concerned it probably is for everybody that's involved in the world of food and drink you know we absolutely recognize your importance so what's your experience been then during this covid presumably you know really blurred lines on what you can do and when you can do it and then really hazy definitions of yeah. when you're going to be able to do what you do just just tell me about i suppose yeah the, the experience of the last 12 months and your thoughts and feelings on uh well, yeah, on, on on covid and, and events yeah i guess 12 months down the line i've become relatively phlegmatic about it all you know there's there's some things i can change and, and do and there's some things i can't change but um yeah as for all of us early on in lockdown there was a you know none of us ever experienced anything like this before um and as you say there were there are industries which were worse hit than us and um you know such as night my brother owns nightclubs in london you know they haven't they haven't done one dot of business um in 12 months um and obviously the airlines and and hotels and things like that i think um hospitality's had some good pr you know obviously you've had you were um you've been involved in the um in the drive for a minister of hospitality and it's almost at that point when i listened to your your podcast where you interviewed sort of 10 i think it was 10 people in the industry and no, not one person throughout that entire podcast mentioned events and i thought you know are we or you know and and obviously the government i say obviously everyone you speak to says of course your hospitality but when it came to 
the revenue who were sort of calling the shots, announcing who was on the list of people who would get, say, rates relief, um, which was a big, you know, which is quite a large chunk of money for most businesses. Um, catering companies and events companies were not on there. And I've realized since, to, you know, that basically they, the way they define it is if you've got a door that um, is open to the public, you know, you open the shop door in the morning, people can walk through it, then you are either retail or hospitality, one or the other, and you got the rates rebate. But anyone with a unit or a warehouse where you, you know, you traveled to, to different places each time just were completely, there was a sort of a, a, a gap in the pavement, which we, we've all gone down. And we, you know, we fought long and hard to try and get um, that rates relief, along with, you know, any other grants that were going. And, and until recently, we were singularly unsuccessful with that. Um, and that, you know, part of it's because the revenue devolved responsibility for handing out these grants to local councils who, um, and they were given a little bit of leeway to sort of define things the way they, they felt they should. And they certainly had some discretionary powers in all of these grants, but they certainly didn't advertise this. And um, and actually getting someone on the end of the phone or someone to answer an email was nigh on impossible. I mean, even writing to my local MP, it took her three months to answer my email. Um, so, and in the meantime, I could hear lots of MPs um, in Parliament every now and then, you know, asking Rishi Sunak about um, how come my there's an, a, one of my constituents is a, a company that deals with power for events. Um, they haven't got a shop, you know, why are they why are they considered not part of hospitality? They're totally dependent on it, and yet they haven't got this relief and and that relief. So that was I was a little bit sort of. Um, uh, Angry is probably too strong a word, but but annoyed for a long time that we seem to be forgotten, even by hospitality. Because when all of these, you know, when the hospitality sector were pushing for lots of things, I'm sure they weren't asking for the events companies to be included in all of this. And and I was, you know, trying to sort of make sure we weren't forgotten. But I, um, we don't really have an industry voice, uh, particularly. Mm. Not like you guys have developed off, you know, like hospitality has developed for itself recently which is you know becoming quite a powerful voice um we didn't really have an events body um so um that's been tough yeah. i bet yeah sorry to interrupt but yeah it just almost feels like a bit of a no-brainer like you say although you don't have people coming to you it's like you know if only if only six people can meet <laughs> then clearly you can't run events so well, you're in the eye of the storm so although although i would say that people banging the drum you know ne- weren't necessarily including events they certainly weren't excluding events they probably just presumed that it was a bit of a no-brainer to go yeah like if you go and do events in other people's building that's that's still a that's still yeah. hospitality i suppose and i can imagine how frustrating that must have been to, to, well, to watch that also speaking to other you know other catering companies um i spoke to one one chap who's got um who's got several catering companies within their sort of within their sphere and they're all in different boroughs and it was interesting to see how the different boroughs uh the different councils were dealing with each of these you know the 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 same issue and they had been given quite a lot of latitude so some were gave out the the rates relief quite early on to some catering companies and events companies and especially if if there was a loophole they could that would help them um i.e some guy said look we help we host tastings here um, you know about 15 tastings here a year and, and when, at what point at which point the doors open for someone in the public to come in a bit like a private room at a posh london restaurant or something like that so you want you can't turn up to the gavroche and expect to just walk in the door unless you've got a booking so 
other boroughs took a bit more of a, 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 yeah, a different view to it. But the borough I'm in in North London, Brent Council, have, you know, been quite difficult to, um, to A, speak to anyone and B, you know, they even turned us. So catering companies, obviously, in deepest, darkest lockdown can't do anything. But um, and then when when lots of hospitality places could open up, we're allowed to do things. But as you say, it's six people at a party is not quite the same. So we haven't been able to do you know, it's not been good for, for restaurants, but when, when you're allowed to trade, it's pretty good, especially when it's tables of six. And I know I know some restaurants where people I know are, are their managers, they've turned over 700 covers in a day, you know, in September or something like that. So, and yet we are running at, I, I, funnily enough, we've just finished our year-end figures and we've turned over 15% of our normal turnover and lost uh, half a million pounds this year. And, you know, our landlord's, that's the other interesting aspect is how landlords have treated um, treated this, you know, the whole pandemic. Retail landlords, on the whole, have been much more understanding and much more business-like about what they expect from their tenants. You, you know, who are obviously having terrible times. Whereas commercial landlords um, are arguing that nothing's changed. In fact, commercial property is increasing in value because there's more online. Uh, online companies there's more dark kitchens there's you know that people are, that warehouses are more in demand than they were before so we had a rent review last june which went on for six months because we were arguing about you know whether the pandemic should have affected our rent and you know we basically lost that and um so our rent got put up um in the middle of, of a pandemic and um the only the only thing they've done to help us, our landlords, is say, well, rather than that rent increase starting immediately, we're going to delay it for two years, but then you'll have to pay pay the whole lot back over the three years following that. So it's been, and we've struggled to get any other than, so we did finally get an additional restrictions grant, which, um, you know, we're supposed to put towards our, our rates, but the additional restrictions grant was supposed to be for fixed costs for companies that who can't, who can't really operate under under lockdown or guidelines, and to help with rent, um, electricity, insurances, uh, you know, vehicle finances, and things like that. So, the only help we've had is furlough, and thank God for furlough. I mean, without it, we would be we would have gone bust by now, or had to sack all of our staff. And that's that's one thing we're very proud of that throughout all of this i think we've only let one member a couple of staff have gone they've decided to go and do something else which is totally understandable didn't want to wait and a couple have gone home to brazil or whatever you know until it's all over and we've only lost one member of staff you know because they just didn't seem to want to be involved at all even you know even during lockdown so um but other than that we've kept the team together and and you know furlough has enabled us to do that even though we are losing money every month to the tune of sort of 50 grand a month something like that um we are we've kept the team together and you know i've often said to people it's all very well making money for quite a long time but if when the minute things go wrong you sack everyone just so you don't lose money i think it's i think that's wrong and um you know my business partner and i made a decision early on in this that even if it cost us half a million to a million pounds and all the money we had in the bank we would we weren't just going to throw everyone out especially you know and, and when business comes back, if we don't have our team there, it takes years to grow that kind of team. So, you know, we've taken a view that it, it, we are going to lose money, but we'll get through it somehow. 
Mm. Well, you sound, you know, remarkably stoic on the basis, like you say, you've been going through this for a year now, I guess, as we all here have. Uh, you're absolutely right that, you know, it's been devastating for so much of the sector. But, you know, I'm in a position where I'm very lucky that at least when I do open the doors and have been able to, even though there's been some bonkers restrictions, not so much December Christmas mm. parties with, you know, two hands tied behind our backs where we, you know, we, we were probably losing more money by being open than being shut. But in the main, we've been able to take some cash, um, which has been a, a lifesaver. You, you can't sustain that forever. You can't carry on losing 50 grand. You can't carry on keeping people employed you don't need. What's mm. your, um, I suppose, your, you know, look, looking at the horizon, how are you feeling things are going to change? You, you've mentioned seasonality, that you've got quite yeah. a short season. That's going to be even shorter this year than normal. How do you see the next sort of six to 12 months panning out? And, and do you think that the government are going to need to do more have you sort of lost lost the will to uh to you know to hope for that anymore um i was we've been waiting to see how our clients would react to the roadmap and and they've been quite slow to react i think they're probably more concerned about just getting their shops open and and things like that we've had lots of private inquiries but it's a very competitive market um and it, obviously we are not the cheapest so we you know it's been quite hit and miss with getting the private stuff but it feels like you know May's picking up a little bit for sort of small events. But then after June the 21st, we're just starting to get um, a few inquiries uh, for... And so we might have a couple of weeks of being crazy busy after June the 21st, and we'll use flexible furloughing to enable us to sort of do those and look after our regular clients. I mean, funnily enough, just harking back to what you said about sometimes it's not worth opening, you know, because you know you're going to lose money. But for us, it, you know, saying no to our clients means they'll go and find somebody else who can do it. And then the chances are they won't be there when next time, you know, you have to sometimes you have to lose money on things just to retain clients. But um, after June 21st, I mean, I keep, you know, the government have said we, you know, after June 21st, we can do whatever we like. I'm still waiting for all the, um, you know, for the for the sting in the tail, which is you can do all you like as long as everyone's wearing a mask or a meter distant or, you know, this is the bit that I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to find out because that will, you know, big events is where we make money. You know, it's um, doing all the shop stuff pays the bills, but in terms of sort of actually making money in the busy times of year, we rely on those Cartier Polo kind of events and big events for 500 people in the Serpentine Summer Party. And if things like that can't happen, um, then we're going to struggle in the future. It's a bit like you only being told you you can only open at seventy percent capacity. You're going to struggle to make money on seventy, eighty percent capacity. So, I'm waiting to find out if there's if there's going to be you know sort of um, details added to to what we can do, which which make it more difficult to do things. But and reality is, it probably won't go back to normal for us until September, and only then, as long as there aren't some silly you know some things put in where everyone's got to have a COVID passport to come to the event. I think the more barriers that are put in the way of hosting big events, the less they will happen and the less people will want to do it. Yeah. I don't know what I'm more stressed about. You know, your business now, or well, back when you were hosting those massive parties and it might all go wrong on the night. I don't know. I'm going well, to need a glass. If it wasn't so early in the day, I'd probably have had to have a glass of wine with this conversation. <laughs> the, other, the other interesting thing is you've obviously been getting ready for your reopening recently. And we're also frightened of, of, of being a bit sort of, of, of being a bit rusty, you know, that we've, mm. when we've not done anything more than sort of 30 people for 
for six months. I mean, we did a bit of business at Christmas and a few Christmas parties and stuff, but, um, you know, along the lines of, of pop-up restaurants and stuff or restaurants where everyone was seated at tables of six, we haven't really done anything. And we are nervous that, you know, we need to, um, we need to make sure that we're not too rusty to deliver the quality that people come to expect from us. So that's, that's on our sort of plate at the moment of, of what do we need to do to make sure we're match fit? And yeah. it's about, you know, some people have got quite used to working from home and, and not going to the office and not having to work late at nights and things like that. So it's, um you know, we need to manage our people well and make sure our, our systems are all, you know, are all oiled and ready to go. Um, and, you know, and as with everything in events, as soon as you've got a date, it focuses the mind. So now we've got these, you know, we've got a few things coming in after the 21st of June. It's starting to focus our mind on being ready for those dates. You know, before that, a couple of small things, got a wedding at the end of May, got, you know, a few more hampers to do, have a, have a few waiters and shops, that kind of thing. But after the 21st of June, I think we might have two or three weeks of busyness and then it will go away probably for July, August, when everyone wants to go on holiday and then come back in September. So we just got to, you know, we've kept the team together. We just now need to make sure the team is match fit come, come match day. Mm. Well, I think once we're allowed to, I think there is going to be this huge amount of, of pent up delight. You just look at weddings, isn't it? You think, yeah. God, there's a year's worth of people yeah. who haven't got married who will want to. So I think the demand's going to be there. I can give you some reassurance on the on the team front. I was very worried about you know reopening and the team being rusty, and and, and I was worried about you know even when we were shut, you try and do things to keep the team gelled and a bit of online yeah. training. But I was just like you know the the, the the banter and the way that people work together, and the, like I say, the, the the animation and the energy the team bring yeah. to the buildings. You know, is that going to be instantaneous? And, and what do we do about that? And a customer's going to be reasonable. But, you know, we, we had the team in the week before we reopened and, and it was just so exciting. I remember being stood in the middle of the restaurant and I looked around and, you know, there was a couple of people behind the bar sort of filling the fridges and there was a chef was sat down with, with one of the managers, you know, literally writing the menu and uploading it onto the website. And, uh, and, and just everywhere I looked, somebody was sort of sat filling up the ketchups and the mayonnaises. Yeah. And there was just this, it was just really, you know, like, I don't know, it was emotional well, to see these turn, buildings start to come turn, back to yeah. life. My turn to have a nice smile on my face. I can just sort of imagine it, you know, and you surveying the scene and thinking, well, this is what we're supposed to do, what this place, you know, place should be doing. And it's been, I mean, look, there's silver linings to everything in life. You know, I've, I've, I'm old enough now to realise that, you know, bad things happen sometimes, but you can take positives from it. And my God, don't we all appreciate eating out? I mean, I've, I've been out two or three times and sat freezing in garden somewhere, but absolutely loved it. And, um, you know, my kids appreciate school now, you know, we appreciate there's so much we, we took for granted. And now, you know, as we slowly get our freedoms back, um, you know, there's things we really appreciate now. And I can just imagine you smiling as, as the life gets pumped back into your, your busy place. And, um, we've yet to get there. The closest we get at the moment is a few of us go to the office on a Wednesday to sort of, um, you know, to sort of check on the building and, and, and make sure, you know, do a bit of work and um even when three or four of us are in the office there's a nice buzz and we we really miss that um I, I always i always all these companies that are talking about never forcing people to go to the office again everyone being working working from home they will miss something and they maybe they can't put their finger on it at the moment but you know human interaction and getting to know your colleagues and working as a team and bouncing ideas off each other doesn't work so well on zoom it doesn't work so well when you can't see someone or or overhear them having a giggle with somebody else or you know it, it, it I, I had to answer a survey for the 
somehow I got on the list of companies that the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, contacts the whole time. And I'm constantly filling out surveys for them. And they're asking all sorts of questions. And some of it is, you know, will you be expecting your staff to, um, are you going to allowing them to, to work from home or off, or off a flexi time? And we'll do a little bit of that, but we, we are pretty firmly convinced that a buzzing office, a buzzing building where everyone comes in to work is a much more productive place, certainly for events. And um, and obviously, you, you know, when it comes to the event itself, you can't not go. We've got to go to that. But in terms of people coming to the office, you know, it, it, we've, we we'll, would allow some people, and I've always said this, some people are very trustworthy to work from home and others aren't. You know, there are some people who you know are probably putting in two or three hours a day when they're and they're saying they're doing six or seven there is other people who are probably work harder because they feel they feel guilty about being at home but we um we want to find that nice you know work-life balance as much as possible but the buzz in the office is is key we think mm. yeah i think you're right and everyone i'm speaking to seems to and any even the the team members i think you know it's this hybrid it's like yes we've learned a bit about flexibility and it's and it's nice on occasions to work from home and sometimes missing the commute and actually it's just nice to be trusted that you know if a job needs doing it is about getting the job done and not where i do it however everybody i speak to whether that's the bosses and the mds or even the teams they they miss it you know they want to be in there at least a few days a week and uh, and getting that sort of your know, relationship and banter and i think if you work in our sector you know front facing with people yeah. um it's, it's even more relevant um we, we've got to draw to a close very shortly because we're running out of time but is there anything you've done you mentioned earlier about you know hampers and things that you've you've trialed and i presumably these aren't things that you've done before but you were just sort of racking your brains trying to work out a way of you know doing doing events and and, and keeping your team busy in a pandemic have, have any of these things sort of surprised you and worked well where you think you will continue to offer them in the future or are they all things that are sort of you know very very much negligible in the in the overall sort of business plan um at the end of the day we react to what our clients want so we, you know, if anyone wants that thing in the future, we've we've learned how to do it. We've built our templates. We, you know, we can show them lots of samples and that kind of thing. But they are our business isn't really geared up financially to do to do that because the, the sums of money involved don't even touch the site. So, you know, we've we've had a couple of weeks where we've, we've had the whole, you know, ten or eleven people in packaging and doing all the rest of it, but we've still turned over you know, a tenth of what we normally would. So yes, we can still offer it as an extra, but it's not something that we're going to, you know, and we'll do it when we're asked, but it's not something that we are, you know, scaled, you know, basically built to do in terms of the, of the business. We've got two, you know, 14,000 square foot of, of, um, of warehousing and offices and kitchens, and um, they don't get paid for by, by sending out some luxury hampers. You know, it's, it's the events that, you know, that are the lifeblood of what we do. And, um, so no, we're we're hoping it you know it's back to events. Um, you know we've tried hard to reinvent ourselves during during lockdown and have done some some stuff we're proud of, such as helping the NHS feed some of the. We're basically right next door to an ambulance station, so in early lockdown, where lots of our suppliers and us had leftover food for about six weeks to two months, we managed to. I think make 10,000 meals um, from people working at home. And then one of our drivers would go and pick pick all the, all the things up and then deliver them to the ambulance station who would distribute them either to their staff or to other ambulance stations. So there've been things like that we've managed to do to keep us busy, but um, no, going forward, we want to get back to events and doing what we do well. Yeah. They must've loved having you as a neighbor, the ambulance service. They, yes. they, they, they lucked out there, didn't they? <laughs> we improved our relations, our neighborly relations. That's for sure. 
Yeah, definitely. You get priority uh, blue light service if you ever need it. With, uh, and hopefully you won't. Yeah, it's quite reassuring yeah. everyone next door in case something goes wrong or a, a chef manages to cut their, their finger off or something like that. <laughs> yeah, hypothetically. Um, you've mentioned Bertie a couple of times as well, by the way, and I'm conscious some people will be going, who the hell's Bertie? So he's the uh, you know, so your, your partner in the business. How did, how did you two meet? How did you two end up doing this uh, adventure together? Um, well, we actually, I've, I've forgotten that we talked about him before you started recording, but he's got one of those fantastic uh, events names, Bertie de Rougemont. He's, um, he's a, uh, you know, two of us have similar backgrounds. Um, and um, we met, he was doing, he worked, used to work for Sony many years ago, sort of marketing and, and that and PR and that kind of side of things, and then left to set up his own sort of corporate events company doing wine tastings and things like that. And that's when I met him because my wife at the time um was waitressing for him as she pursued her writing career and at some point she said you guys should meet because you don't know what you want to do i.e me and he is very good at some things but i can see he's not so good at other things and so we we had some mutual friends anyway so we met and i started working for him and um after a few years that was going well but the company was 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 struggling and we had to shut that company down and then we set a new company up together back in 2004 I think it was something like that 2005 and it it was hard work for quite a few years after that but you know after the last 10 years it's worked and we've been able to pay ourselves salaries and things like that but um it's one of those journeys I'm sure you're all too familiar with in events and that kind of thing is is killing yourself for a long time to try and make something work which you believe in and that you're passionate about. And um, eventually, when it does work, you can hopefully take your foot off the gas a bit and um, and try and find a bit more of a, a balance between you know life and work and and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's the dream, I think. And uh, yeah, I, th- I feel like it, happens, it never feels like it happens consistently for a very long period of time. But I do make the most of whenever I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, I've got a, I've got a GM in each venue, I've got a head chef in each venue, the team yeah. are doing well, we're busy. And I, and now I really appreciate those moments, because what I do know is inevitable is that's not always going to be the case. Something always seems to go wrong. And the, the roller coaster um, of business is, is relentless. Um, look, I've, I've really thoroughly enjoyed uh, chatting to you. I think you're in an, you're in an incredible space. It's been brilliant. Um, where should people go? You don't advertise, so don't bother. But you're, actually, I will say your Instagram page is amazing. The quality yeah. of the shots on there, you know, absolutely incredible. But any other burning issues that you want to mention? And if not, where should people go if they do want to find out the little bit that you will tell well, them? <laughs> as you said, Instagram, and we do have a website, but we're not the greatest at keeping it updated. What we tend to find with the website is people just, you know, take your ideas off it. So um, we um, Instagram's our shop window, really. And, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, during lockdown, there's not been quite as much of Instagram as we would like. But, um, you know, no burning issues. Just um, really hope we can all get back to what we love, love doing, you know, serving people and doing great events. And, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully things are, you know, turn the corner and, and there is a way out of all of this. Um, I'm sure there are a few, you know, uh, twists in the tail to come, but um you know, hopefully if we had this same interview next year, we'll, things have, will really have improved and we'll sort of be back to normal. 
I hope so. I was down at my restaurant on uh, Sunday and we had a DJ uh, doing a sort of live radio show outside on the terrace. And um, we've got, we're lucky because we're on the beach. So there's plenty of space for people to spread out. And there were people kind of, you know, dancing and, and having a few oh, drinks. Wow. And it, nobody was being silly. You know, nobody was on top of each other. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, because it was outside, not everybody had a mask on. So you could see people's face and people yeah. smiling. And oh my God, did it feel amazing just to get a little glimmer. You know, it was a tenth of what we yeah. would normally do. But you just thought, how exciting is it? And you could see, you know, people walking walking past were stopping and taking photos and videos because they were just so bloody excited to see a bit of normality so no fingers fingers crossed it was good fun right well look thank you adam you know really appreciate you sparing the time i will pop your 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 details up on the uh, on the show notes that will go with this episode but uh yeah best of luck if you're ever in bournemouth come down and say hello and see me and hopefully one day i'll have done well enough to get invited to one of your events well i'm often in the isle of purbeck so um i may take you off on that offer at some point um, Ah, amazing What, what, what are you doing there uh we have an old family cottage that my great grandfather built back in the day. I, I yeah. love the Purbex. I'm over there with my son on Saturday on a bike ride. So uh, yeah, maybe I'll see you there. We'll have a beer in the banks or something. Perfect. So literally about half a mile from the banks. But, um, Amazing. All right. Talk to you, Mark. Take care. Thanks, Adam. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed Adam's stories and journey so far. Head over to the website for links to his website and Instagram pages at humansofhospitality.co.uk. And remember, whilst you are there, do sign up for the newsletter that I send out with each new release. You can even buy me a thank you beer on that site by hitting the Patreon or PayPal button. It's hot and sunny, so a cold beer, always appreciated. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Cheers.